Maximum Health with your host, Dr. Ken Gray. Dr. Gray obtained his master's in both acupuncture and oriental medicine from the Atlantic Institute of Oriental Medicine. Dr. Gray enjoys both being a physician as well as being an educator. His unique approach to holistic healing has taken him abroad to lecture in Germany and treat sports professionals in Hawaii and France. He is co-author of several books on food therapy. His office is in Jupiter, Florida, where he has practiced for over a decade and where he resides. Now it's time for Maximum Health with Dr. Ken Gray. Sometimes I feel like my only friend is the city I live in, the city of angels. Lonely as I am, together we cry. Welcome back, everyone. This is Maximum Health Radio, Quality Living. Yours truly, Dr. Ken Gray. Today I'm on the phone with a a wonderful individual, Dr. Richard Zonderman, clinical psychologist. And I wanted to, um, you know, uh, start the show by explaining why I'm doing this particular show and, uh, and this approach. Um, you know, besides the fact that in this time in history, uh, we are dealing with so much in, as a world, uh, globally, and as a country, um, between the uh, the introduction of a new virus and how we deal with it, how we respond to media, and how we respond to it socially and, and, and health-wise. Um, we've then dealt with, uh, re- more recently, the sadness and the anger uh, spurned by an individual who died at the knee, uh, hands and knee of a police officer, and this has shocked um, so many, not the fact that it can happen, but it, that it did happen at this time, and by someone that um, wears a uniform that uh, basically represents serving and protecting. Um, yeah, I was asked by my son, one of my children, Dad, what are you going to do? What kind of show are you going to do about this? And I've seen uh, family members, including my wife, cry uh, several days since this has happened. Uh, People are very emotionally taken aback. I have patients that have had different versions of conversations about this. Basically, what I get from all of it is there's a sense of hopelessness. And and, um, when there's hopelessness, I feel like the best we can do is educate one another. Uh, I think education is healing. I think exposing or understanding uh, different elements of things that we may not be looking at or maybe overlooking can be helpful. So as a healer, I wanted to do a show with a gentleman that has had experience with the psychological screening of police officers and um, has had an extensive history working with the CIA and police departments in this screening. And I wanted to do this because I feel there's an individual nature to all of us who wear a uniform or take an oath, uh, whether you're a physician, a teacher, um, a soldier, a police officer, you take an oath and you give a sense of your life over to the public. And in that, there is something special. Now, along the way, we all have our hurdles, we all have our you know, challenges. And some of them are physical, some of them are mental, some of them are com- uh, emotional, and some of them are a combination thereof. And so I wanted to talk to someone that could shed some light on how this is dealt with on the screening process and, and some of the things that he's seen over the years that can give us some connection, some compassion, some understanding, some togetherness, and some, of course, hope. So thank you, Dr. Zonderman, for joining us today. 
Oh, you're welcome. Um, so, when give me a little bit. I know that we we've spoken briefly uh, of your rich history. You're currently you've been working with Miami Dade uh, police officers in screening. You've worked with the CIA in the past. If we can start back there, <laughs> uh, give us a little bit of your history. That would be wonderful. Okay, I am a, uh, a licensed psychologist in, uh, in the state of Florida, and I've been licensed in uh, Virginia. I've had 40 plus years sort of working in the clinical psychology field. For 20 years, um, I was an independent contractor with the CIA, which uh, I think is almost a uniform uh, service. I uh, taught in management training programs. And then when I came to Florida, I began to work at Miami-Dade College in the School of Justice, developing promotional exams for police departments, exams for sergeants, uh, lieutenants, and captains. And so, you know, worked closely with uh, the police administrations and the higher-ranking police officers in developing these promotional exams, which were designed to tap the kinds of issues that policemen faced. And then I uh, began screening uh, applicants for the Miami-Dade Police Academy, and I occasionally will screen uh, applicants for uh, police departments. That's my I guess involved, and that's ongoing, so that's my involvement with uh, police departments, and currently I teach at Albizu University in the master's degree program, both uh, IO psychology and counseling psychology. Okay. Um, now, when we look at the, uh, you know, Miami is notorious for having some significance in the world of crime levels, if you were to, say, compare Miami to maybe another uh, city, uh, it's, it's higher ranked, right? Am I, am I mm -hmm. correct in yeah. saying that? Yeah. And, and obviously, yeah, I, we're, I, we can go by shows like Miami Vice and Dexter and <laughs> all these popular yeah. shows that have been out for a time and, and have shed light on this sort of fact. I mean, it's a reality. So an officer in Miami-Dade, or someone planning to be one, can expect to probably draw their firearm more often than say someone in I don't know any other city in the US uh, that that is less crime ridden uh, maybe Palm Beach Gardens let's throw that out there uh, I'm not sure exactly what their expectations are. Mm -hmm. I remember one of the questions we asked police applicants in Richmond, Virginia, was how many times do you expect to draw your weapon? And people would say, oh, in a career. And people would say five or ten. And the truth was the typical Richmond, uh, city of Richmond policeman never drew his weapon, not mm -hmm. once in wow. an entire career. Now, I think that's very different in big major cities. My hunch is that Miami uh, is like any other major city, uh, Los Angeles, mm -hmm. Detroit, uh, mm -hmm. Philadelphia, New York, and that uh, while policemen, the applicants that I deal with, uh, they hope to help people, they hope to make a difference. Uh, I don't know that they focus on the dangers or ask themselves, how many times am I going to have to draw uh, my weapon. That I think for most policemen is a is a scary happening. Mm. <laughs> they're they're not looking forward to being in situations where they have to draw down on somebody. Right. However, there you said for most. So there are some which you may have observed that would anticipate this and almost 
possibly look forward to it? Question mark. Uh, yes, I mean I have to say yes only because in any group, you know, including uh, psychologists, there are people who somehow slip in and are unsuitable, and I'm sure the excitement. Uh, of being in dangerous uh, situations and driving a car with lights and sirens at high speeds appeals to some uh, some people. Uh, I think that kind of stimulus seeking is uh, is different from sort of looking forward to pulling a gun on somebody. Um, I, I doubt that's the case with many, but you know I can't say there aren't any because that's you know never say never sort of. Right. Now, as far as the screening goes, uh, and when it comes to Miami-Dade police officers, can you give us some, walk us through that process? Sure. Um, well, 90% of police departments nationwide uh, use some sort of psychological screening. But I can't think of a job for which people are screened so thoroughly. Um, there is a background check that's conducted by a police department investigator. Those, so these people are trained, and they look at everything. They look into educational history, employment, military, driving records, financial records, drug use, relationships. Uh, it's a very thorough uh, screening. Then there's a psychological evaluation that's administered by a doctoral-level psychologist who, if the departments are following recommendations, is familiar with both clinical psychology and police work. Then there is an interview, and if you pass all of those things, you get to go to an academy where you are observed and supervised, and if you make it out of the academy, then you ride with a field training officer for some length of time where you're evaluated again. And if you sort of make it through that, then you become a policeman. So it's a pretty extensive um, screening selection process. Mm -hmm. Are these national standards or just uh, state to state? Uh, well, actually, not even state to state. The International Association of the Chiefs of Police publishes standards and I think they are the ideals but it's up to the states and the counties and the cities to, to, to decide what they're going to do. So for example I say 90% of police departments have some sort of psychological screening. Not every state mandates psychological screening um, and it's up to the departments to decide how extensive an evaluation they're going to conduct so there would be um, variability Mm. And so that would, if they're not even going to, those that wouldn't or do not, if they're not doing that, they're probably not doing interim psychological evaluations. Say one uh, officer does draw their pistol um, or there is an altercation, violent or what have you. Well, interim would be unlikely because you have other rules that, that govern those things. If, if, if a fitness for duty evaluation is ordered, and in order to request a fitness for duty evaluation, an officer has to be having a problem which is most likely due to a psychological condition. Um, and if those criteria were met, then the department could ask for a fitness for duty and you would have uh, an interim, so to speak, psychological. But 
no departments that I know of, so I'll say very few departments, just periodically, every five years or something, conduct psychologicals. There you're, you would run into issues with unions and things like things like that. Um, behavior problems that aren't due to a psychological reason, they would be handled by in, internal affairs um, and, you know, the disciplinary policies would be followed, but uh, I doubt there are very many just routine mm. interim psychologicals. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, for me as a citizen and as a observer, it would seem that it would be a health concern to do them with some sort of regularity because officers are people too. And they yes, have stress, no. they have issues, they have, you know, needs. And even in your corporate setting of a, you know, uh, uh, any corporate setting of standard, there's routine sort of check-ins uh, for performance so that you can do your best at your job. And since this job is a really important job, you would think that it would be beneficial mm -hmm. Uh, to have some sort of routine check-ins. Oh, I, I absolutely agree with you, although I would approach it uh, a little bit differently. Um, there aren't any, many jobs that I can think of that are as stressful as uh, working in law enforcement. It's emotionally, mentally, physically demanding, and it takes its toll on people. You know, we can go back to World War II and we talked about battle fatigue, and uh, Vietnam, we talked about PTSD, and now even in our profession, we talk about burnout. So I absolutely agree with you that over time, these stresses can be cumulative. I think there are lots of sort of legal and personnel issues that might make it hard to routinely um, administer psychological evaluations. The way I would approach it, uh, you know, if, if, if I had my brothers, I would train sergeants. I think they are the backbone of the police department. They supervise the patrolmen who are out on the streets, and I would train them and uh, help them develop their mental health sensitivities so they could very early on recognize the signs of stress, recognize when an officer was becoming a little impatient or uh, a little hostile so that they could then intervene and help the officer, not in a punitive way, but, you know, and from a mental health um, perspective. Supportive. I would have, uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. I just use the word supportive. I think that's the key. Yes, exactly. And, and sometimes, you know, if something else is required, like some sort of treatment, fine, implement it without uh, stigmatizing sort of the officer. I think that internal affairs, when they investigate com complaints, and they always do, because every, every police officer in, in a career is going to have some complaints, and most of them are not well-founded, but they're going to be investigated. They should be mentally, uh, they should be mental health savvy mm -hmm. so that they can say, okay, maybe this officer uh, followed the procedures, but you know, he was a little too aggressive or a little too quick to get angry. Right. So I think there are several spots where you could identify people who might be headed in the wrong direction, and I would intervene. I would interview you there. Now, obviously, that would require the support 
of administration, you know, nothing happens if uh, people at the top don't support it. But rather than subject people to sort of automatic psychologicals, I think I would go the route of just trying to change the culture so that it was okay for police officers to say, you know, hey, I'm drinking a little bit more, I'm feeling stressed out, I'm arguing with my wife more, I'm getting more impatient. Uh, most departments have psychological services section or they have people who provide, you know, employee assistance. So uh, I, I would, I guess I would lean towards the early recognition, uh, early intervention as opposed to the routine um, psychs. Right. And, and the other reason I would do that is um, because somebody can feel stressed and do fine on a psychological evaluation. Right. Yes. You know, they're not going to look uh, pathological on an evaluation, yet they may be in need of help and, uh, and you know, have a need to talk to somebody. Yeah, so that sensitivity is key. And, and also uh, having an air of supportive, um, uh, you know, a supportive nature within the mm-hmm. the police force is seems like that would be the next step so I, I, I like your your idea of coming from the top or someone who is really in touch with the uh, officers under them to be part of that you know gatekeeping um, you know that it's a, that it's a camaraderie we're here for each other rather than you know waiting for things to bubble to a escalation where it's almost untouchable and then requires some sort of uh, you know uh, uh, retaliation or, or disciplinary <laughs> approach because then, right. then right. now you're creating an enemy sort of situation internally and no one wants enemies with their co-workers so that's it's it's a lose-lose rather than a win-win sure and I think if you don't intervene early then you run the risk of having a, a terrible incident like what happened recently you right know, you're, you're yeah. too late you yeah. know yeah. Um, to the party Right, because there were several uh, things I, with this, you know, not, I, I don't want to give too much more attention than there already is, because it's in us, it's part of our society, we will never forget it, um, and, and it was horrible, and there's nothing good about it, um, and the timing couldn't be worse with, you know, the amount of stress mm-hmm. that people are under, um, you know, it was, just, it was just a match that lit an explosion that's, you know, unfathomable right now, and, and, but uh, to stay in the positive and to sort of be more of a healing force and a light in this time, Time, I think you know the idea is that there are those signs that led up to this. There, it could have been squelched earlier, you know. And there, there are timeless books uh, that that give light to you know, like Sun Tzu. It's you know, treat small things as if they're big and big things as if they're small. So it goes back to you know, devil is in the details. If we can look at the little things as they are accumulating and deal with them when they're little and bend that branch, we won't have to break it or branches won't be broken. And so, um, right, exactly. what are some of these red flags? Uh, if you can be specific about things from a psychological standpoint, when you do the screening, give us some red flags that you would look for specifically. Well, um, there are a number of, well, I guess the, the test, the psychological evaluation does two things. It rules out people who are unstable. Okay, and then it rules in people who have the personality that is uh, well suited for police work. So what I'm looking for, the identified sort of competencies are social competence, which is being tactful and respectful and treating people fairly and impartially. Um, they have to be team players. Interestingly, they have to be assertive and um, 
persuasive. They have to be able to take charge in a situation, yet at the same time, they have to have impulse control. They have to be conscientious. They have to be adaptable, flexible. They need to have a service orientation. They need to have integrity. Um, they need to be able to regulate stress and uh, their own feelings. And the things that rule people out would be any kind of serious thought disorders, any emotional ability, uh, lack of stability, um, so that they would be easily overwhelmed. Anger problems um, would rule uh, somebody out. That's from the psychological, uh, I think, uh, anyone who's ever been accused of uh, domestic violence or been found guilty of domestic violence, mm -hmm. extensive drug use, those things, you don't need a psychological, you know, those people are, are, are ruled out. So there are a number of rule outs and there are an awful lot of rule ins, um, you know, when you, when you select people. So interestingly enough, and again, that goes back to the interim, um, or, or some sort of, uh, regularity of psychovalves is that police officers may start out without the domestic violence or the issues that they um, will tend to have after a few years on the force. Um, I know many cases where that has happened, either personally dealing with it as a, as a physician or, you know, uh, hearing about it through other resources. But the, the interesting part is that, you know, that goes up, the pessimistic, the pessimistic attitude goes up. Um, I, 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 it's hard to find police officers that are not pessimistic about the world as it is. And it, it's almost like you do need a sense of hope to do good <laughs> and not give up. Right. Right. And so the, just yeah. that feeling of hopelessness that they also have as human beings will skew their ability to be a protect and serve force in the world. Yeah. Now, I think there is reason for hope, but you make an interesting point. The research is clear that after five years on the job, policemen are more cynical, more distrustful. Uh, these things haven't developed to a point where they would fail the psychological or they would be ruled out of police work. But after years of frustrating interactions with the public, you know, they want to help, they want to serve, and then they quickly discover that nobody wants to see them. Nobody wants that traffic ticket. Nobody wants to be arrested mm -hmm, if they're mm -hmm. committing uh, yes. a crime. Right. They go to domestic. I, I have a good friend who's a police officer and was on the road for five years in Miami-Dade County and went to a number of domestic violence calls where women had been beaten up. I mean, there were observable bruises and things. And in five years, not one woman testified in court. Not one male was found guilty of doing what they had done. Mm -hmm. And that becomes very frustrating. It's like, why am I going? You know, right. They're not going to press charges. They're not going to show up in court. So uh, those, those experiences create a, a cynicism. Right. The hopefulness, I think, comes from the fact there are tens of thousands of policemen in the United States mm -hmm. interacting a number of times per day with citizens. So these tragic events like what happened to Mr. Floyd are really low probability. Right. You know what I mean? They're really sort of uh, very infrequent in the vast majority of policemen, in spite of the stresses they encounter, uh, are good cops. You know, 
uh, yes. trying hard to doing a good job. It, it almost makes me think of a plane crash. You know, when a plane goes down, hundreds of people die, and it's a terrible, terrible catastrophe. Yet plane travel is the safest way of traveling. You're less likely to die in a plane crash right. than you are driving down 95. So. I, I think there's reason for hope because in spite of the stresses, the majority of, of cops uh, uh, do a great job. Yes. I mean, it's terrible when somebody messes up like in, in Minneapolis, but uh, um, I think that's cause for hope. Yep. And, you know, and, and people I, I agree and I have to agree because I just, you know, as you're saying this, I'm reflecting back just a few months ago where, you know, uh, due to uh, local schools or, or national schools being uh, in danger of uh, you know the shootings and all of these sort of things and, and, and national terrorist type you know internal issues right you had uh, we all turned to the police officers for the safety of our children we took our kids children oh. to school and we showed up and we felt better because there was a police officer there and if there wasn't a yeah. police officer there we were up in arms why aren't there police officers at our children's schools so right. There, we have to remember that they were there then too. So in this time when we're all, you know, mad at the blue uniforms, we have to remember we still want them there <laughs> for right. our family oh, and our we children. Would be in big trouble without them. Yes. So there has to be a balance. There has to be an individual uh, look at certain these cases. You know, not a blanket approach to anything, really. I mean, there's good soldiers, bad soldiers, great doctors, bad doctors, there's great judges, yeah. but you know, the, the list goes on. And we just, you know, want to look at the fact of what can we do better. And it seems that you have some good answers. I hope that people will listen, that there will be new, um, whether it's local governments putting these statutes in place to have regular sort of screenings, interim options, internal uh, police uh, standards that will give them a, a team approach to their health and well-being and allow them to voice their concerns and their feelings and their dismay and their stresses so they can go on to perform at the level that we would like them to perform. Uh, and let, let me add, you've triggered a thought, let me add one thing, and that's the importance of education. Um, community policing, I think, is very effective, and somehow the word has to get out to the public and to parents and kids. Young people have to be told here's what you can do when a policeman pulls you over, and here's what you don't do, mm. you know? Um, and I think somehow if the public were who were more informed about what these guys are going through, and the public, they don't think about things. The most dangerous thing a policeman does is a traffic stop. Mm -hmm. Simply walking up behind a car, if someone in that car has a gun and wants to shoot a policeman, there's no way a policeman can stop it. Yes. It's been demonstrated. They just don't have, you know, the reaction time. So I think if the public were more aware of what the police go through and this community policing they were out there establishing relationships and people knew what to do when they were pulled over so to speak uh that would ease it might ease uh, tensions or whatever well thank you for giving us a, a positive look and a interesting look and a um and, and giving us some opportunity here to think further about the mind of our, our uh, police officers and 
hopefully some hope for both sides, for the citizens and the <laughs> police officers. Well, I, I hope it was helpful, and thank you for uh, inviting me. Yes, I, I appreciate you, Dr. Richard Sonderman, uh, Sonderman a clinical psychologist, and uh, you, you, you again, uh, thank you for your service and all that you've done to help uh, keep us safe. Thank you for joining us. Hope it isn't broken, tried to keep it open, but I couldn't hold it, smashed it down for all to see.